welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this episode, we're going to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy, editor and publisher of Family Tree Magazine at the Family History Expo in Salt Lake City. We'll cover the latest happenings in the genealogy world with the genealogy insider blogger, Diane Haddad. And in our top tips segment, we'll be talking about tracing your immigrant ancestors online with author Rick Crome. We'll be spotlighting another terrific website in the 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots list. In the Best of Family Tree Magazine segment, we'll discuss some of those genealogical myths that we've all heard. Where do those come from? And in our Library Spotlight segment, we're going to go inside the Library of Congress with James Sweeney, head of the Local History and Genealogy Room at the Library. There's lots to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the Editor's Desk with Allison Stacy. Well, we are once again back at the editor's desk, except for today, the editor's desk is in Salt Lake City, because Allison and I are both in Salt Lake City at the Family History Expo. It's really fun to be together in person. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. It's great to be together. And um, we wanted to talk about, because you've got something new coming up, and I want to make sure that people heard about it so they know what to look for uh, in their mailboxes as subscribers. You've got a brand new special issue, right? Well, yes. We've basically added an issue to our schedule. So all of you folks who are saying, we wish you published more often, <laughs> well, you're going to getting your wish. Um, it's a December issue, so um, instead of just having our November and our January, we're cramming another one in there in between, and it's a special themed issue on genetic genealogy. Uh, one of those topics where we're all intri- intrigued, but we're not always necessarily sure on how to start. Um, is this going to be good for us who are beginners, who want to kind of get our feet wet? Definitely. In fact, it's geared toward um, the cover, the main cover story is about DNA myths, about all sort of the misinformation that floats around there and things that people think um, is involved in DNA testing or that you can do with DNA testing that's, you know, maybe not exactly right. Um, So it helps to tell you exactly what you really can expect. um, Do you mean that we can run our DNA and we're not going to get a chart? <laughs> with names and dates on it. Well, exactly, and that's one of the misconceptions. I think that people expect that they can, you know, take their DNA test, and all of a sudden they've got their ancestors back to Adam, and it's not quite that straightforward. Although there are some companies that are starting to combine the DNA testing with the pedigree charts, like um, the Sorensen Molecular Genealogy Foundation. When you take a test, you actually submit a family tree, and so when you. The way that that works, though, is you know you don't get your test results and here's all your ancestors. You can connect with other people who have your test results and then be able to see that genealogical information and determine you know where your trees might intersect. So if your markers match, then you know you have a good reason to look at each other's trees, even though uh, maybe name-wise you hadn't yet made that connection. Exactly, exactly. And you know another thing that people often think that just like in forensics and crime science that 99.9% accuracy so you know genetic genealogy must be the same right and in fact so much of genetic genealogy is really interpreting 
the science and looking at you know people who have similar results to you or the same kind of DNA signature and so there's so much human interpretation that goes into it it's not that the science isn't accurate it's that there's lots of um, possible interpretations and so you're really weighing different probabilities and you know so there's a lot of chance of human error and and really just kind of guesswork involved too so really the more people that get tested the more chance chance you have of connecting with someone and um, the more precise the science will become. So, you know, it's, it's really a case where everyone's going to benefit the more and more people get involved. And so that's really what this issue is for, to help people understand that and to see how it can benefit them. And by getting involved now, they may not get answers today or even connections with another tree, but you're getting kind of in the database. And so as things progress and more people add on, you could very likely get a very happy email a year from now or two years from now that says, oh, now we've got some some connections and some um, matches with your DNA, and then you've got something to work with. Precisely. That's how it works. And so in the issue, we'll talk about some of those truths and misconceptions. And then we've got a lot of just reference material that I think people will find useful lists of testing companies, um, a chart showing the different kinds of tests. We'll also show different um, online databases where you can plug in your DNA results to try and find matches with other people. Um, those databases are growing rapidly, and um, so there's lots of opportunities to, like you said, connect with somebody maybe not today, but a year or two years from now or sometime down the road. Um, all that work will pay off later. Yeah, it sounds great because it sounds like we can kind of get educated because one of the hard parts is just deciding who do you test with exactly. and then where do you post it. To, mm -hmm. And in fact, I was talking with genealogy blogger Shelley Dardashti, mm -hmm. and she was mentioning that, you know, some companies have wonderful Jewish DNA and other ones don't really focus on that and so it makes a big difference how successful you're going to be depending on which company you choose. Exactly so um, you know if there's a surname study that's already started with another company you know those samples are already part of their customer database because that's something else that's important to know is there's each company's own customer database and then there's the public databases that people opt into and say yes I want my results to be included but you have a much greater chance of finding a match within the company's databases where you know you your results compared to another customer's results and then the two of you have to make the decision that yes we want to you know connect but since most people are doing it for that purpose you <laughs> yeah. know it's not like they're going to be secret about their results or not want to get in touch with you for the most part okay. finding a company that you know there's already a surname study with or that they've done a lot of tests on people who have Jewish or African American or you know whatever your background is that that's a definitely a good strategy now, is this um, issue you mentioned as a subscriber, we'll be getting a copy of that in our, our mailbox, is it going to be available on the newsstand? Absolutely, both places, so um, subscribers can look forward to getting that in their mailbox, and you'll be able to find it on the newsstands uh, in early November. Well, I don't know how you do it, but we're really happy that you tucked an extra um, issue in there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, it's time once again to check in with the Genealogy Insider blogger, and that's Diane Haddad. And she's coming to us live from the FGS conference. Hi, Diane. Hey, how are you? I'm doing good. I was I was kind of wishing that I could be out there at FGS, but you are um, 
holding down the fort there and making the rounds. So I was hoping you'd kind of give us the, the insider look at what's going on there at the conference. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, it's always neat to be at the conferences and see other genealogists and, you know, just see what kind of resources are out there for them. So that's their chance to find that stuff out. So you're there in the exhibit hall, and I know that Family Tree Magazine has a booth. Have you made the rounds yet to see all of the different booths? I have been around the hall. It's, it is pretty big, and there's, I don't know how many exhibitors there are there. About, I've heard, 700 registered attendees of the conference. So people are always going in and out of the exhibit hall because they're attending classes, and then be a break, and then more people will come into the hall and look around. And sometimes they took a class that mentioned one of the vendors. So then, you know, a lot of people will go there and find out what that um, that product is all about. You mentioned to me before we got on the recording that there was kind of a new trend going on that kind of started brewing at the Jamboree in Southern California, and you've seen it kind of take off there at FGS. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's um, the ribbons that if people have never been to a conference before, you get a badge that hangs around your neck. It has your name on it, and it says where you're from. And um, at the bottom of that, you can attach different ribbons, and there are more and more ribbons available. For example, if you are a first-time FGS conference attendee, you'll get a ribbon for that. You get a, a ribbon came in everybody's registration packet that's an Ancestry.com member because they're a sponsor of this conference. Um, I went to a podcast session about people who podcast and who listen to podcasts. And so I have one that says podcast fan, and there's one that says keeping up with blogs. I have that one, and society officers have those um, societies can send people to this conference, and so they have a delegate badge for because they're a delegate for their society. So it's it's a good way to kind of tell what people are up to. Oh yeah, It'd give you some conversation starters, tell you where they've been, what they've been doing, and um, I know when I was over at the Family History Expo in Salt Lake City recently, I had my little I listened to genealogy gems ribbons that I was handing out. It's kind of the uh, the new version of the Disneyland pins, you know, the pin trading that goes on. <laughs> it makes it a lot of fun. Family Tree Magazine definitely needs one. Absolutely. absolutely. We'll see what we can come up with. Yeah, well, I did want to tell people about um, an announcement or a couple announcements that I've heard about. To coincide with this conference, Family Search has had its volunteer indexers working on Arkansas search records, and they've just released the first, um, I think about a quarter of the collection has been released on the Family Search record search pilot site. And so they have something like um, 440,000 records online um, of these Arkansas marriages. So that's a great resource for people with ancestors in the area. I was reading about that on your blog uh, this morning, and I, I was very excited, but I noticed that the, the county that I research in isn't there yet, but you said this is only about a quarter of them, so we should be seeing a lot more marriage records coming online soon. I'm looking forward to that. Anything else new there? Ancestry.com, who's one of the sponsors of the conference, has brought their a couple of high-speed scanners here, so um, conference attendees are able to register in the morning for a 15-minute scanning session, and then... Um, the scanning operators will scan any kind of family papers or photos that they have brought with them, and then they give people the digital images on a flash drive so that um, 
that person can take home all of their digitized family history, put on their computer, share it with family. So that was kind of a neat thing that they're doing that was free here. And I've heard that they're thinking about doing that at future conferences. So it's just kind of a test to see how it goes. So there are neat little opportunities like that that come up at these conferences. Oh, isn't that fun? I mean, that's something brand new. I'd love to see that at more conferences. Wouldn't that be great? Well, as always, we're we're glad that you're there and keeping your eye out. We'll keep an eye on your blog at blog.familytreemagazine.com slash insider, because I know that you'll be reporting as, as new things come up. So as always, Diane, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. The Heritage Quest online website was named by Family Tree Magazine as one of the top 10 best websites for tracing your roots, once again this year and for very good reason. It boasts the complete U.S. Census, the periodical source index to genealogy publications, 24,000 history books, and, and loads of other goodies. So to tell us more about this online resource and how to access it is Bill Forsyth. He's the Director of Product Management at ProQuest. Welcome to the show, Bill. Lisa, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we're really glad to have you. I know that many of our listeners have had an opportunity to take a look at Heritage Quest, but um, if not, we just thought we would kind of start with a, a brief overview. Give us a little tour of the Heritage Quest website and what we might find there. Well, uh, Heritage Quest is uh, actually known as HeritageQuestOnline.com. It's available through public and academic libraries all over the world. In fact, there's over 7,000 libraries that subscribe to the product, so there's a very good chance that your listeners will be able to access the product through their local library. And that's the key message is that you go through your local library's website to, to get into the product. And you can do it from home. It's not just an in-library uh, access. You can also do it remotely. The uh, other interesting angle is that over 20 states now here in the U.S. have a statewide subscription to Heritage Quest Online for all of their citizens. The, um, the cost is, is no charge, so as long as you have a library card, you pretty much can uh, use it all you want, whenever you want. That sounds terrific. Just to, to stop right there and ask, how would a person figure out if their state um, would provide them access? Uh, calling the state library is probably the fastest way to get the answer. Uh, or if you can, you can usually just go through your public library uh, because it, even if it's uh, been a, the subscription's been arranged through the state library, the access is through the individual library websites, public library websites. So we would expect that um, all of our public libraries in that state would have access to it if the if the state library had made that arrangement, right? Yes, that's right, Lisa. Okay, great. So we've we've checked with our librarian, and hopefully they've told us that they do have access to it, and we have our trusty library card to sign in online from home. Um, what will we find there? Well, as you mentioned, there's the, the U.S. Federal Census. We have all the images from 1790 to 1930. Uh, we have over 25,000 genealogy and local history books. Uh, there's the Periodical Source Index, which is actually uh, the uh, uh, product of the Allen County Public Libra Library, one of the largest uh, genealogy libraries in the world. There is the uh, Revolutionary War Pension Records, the Freeman Bank Records, for those who are 
doing African-American research, and the U.S. Serial Set, which is a collection of government documents. And I wanted to take a moment and talk about the periodical source index. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, what does it include, and what would we be looking for in that collection? The periodical source index has been um, in existence for over 25 years. Uh, as I mentioned, it's uh, created by the Allen County Public Library, and it contains over 2.5 million article citations from about 6,000, maybe 6,500 uh, genealogy and history periodicals and journals going back to about 1,800. It is updated annually, and it is uh, citation-based, which means then that uh, you can search for articles that have been indexed by the Allen County people. And there's several different ways you can do it. You can do it by name, or you can do it by locality, or you can look up how-to articles that have been specifically indexed by subject. So it sounds like it's a, a great resource and a place to point us to other uh, documents and resources to, to access to further. Percy is very much an underutilized uh, database. Uh, right. Not many, many people are even familiar with it. Uh, its its real value is, is the ability to search for information by locality, by a city or a state. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that articles have been written perhaps about their family or events in their ancestors' community but the articles appeared not necessarily in uh, a local publication of that city or town, but maybe somewhere far away. Perhaps an individual was researching their ancestors, let's say the Smith family, and uh, when they retired uh, from um, their job, they moved to Florida and started doing family history research. While in Florida, they became members of a local genealogical society. And officers of that society found out about the research this individual was doing on a family line back in Ohio and asked this individual if they would be willing to publish their research. So the information about that family shows up in a journal published by a Florida genealogical society. And the value of Percy then is being able to alert you to the fact that, that such an article exists that may contain information about your family or the community where your family uh, comes from you wouldn't even know that it existed without that uh, without that index. Helps you find that needle in the haystack, sounds like. <laughs> in fact, Kurt Witcher, uh, the uh, genealogy manager at the Allen County Public Library, has found consistently over the years that you can pick up about 33% more clues in your research using a database uh, like Percy. Wow. Uh, that would be a reason in itself to go down and ask the public library if, if we can get access to Heritage Quest online, because that sounds like a wonderful, wonderful resource. And before we wrap up, do you have any tips for us? Let's say we get online and anything we should keep in mind to, to get the most benefit out of using the website? Sure. Um, perhaps the most active uh, data that's being added to Heritage Quest on a regular basis are the genealogy and local history books. We now over, have over 25,000 books and more are coming uh, and in the uh, next few months, uh, probably be up to 30,000 here in, within the next six months. A lot of it is brand new, unique uh, content, and uh, they may find that uh, regularly visiting the uh, book collection and Heritage Quest online will, will bring up some new information that they hadn't seen before. For example, we're digitizing the book collection of the American Antiquarian Society, one of the oldest 
historical societies in the country. So you'll find old county histories, city directories, church histories, and a lot of other information that's in the book collection. And, and so my advice would be to encourage your listeners to regularly visit the, the book collection and Heritage Quest. And are you saying that these books have been digitized, then we can actually search them and look through the digitized pages? Yes, in fact, uh, every, they're every word searchable. It's full text of the, of the book. You'll get to see the actual images of the pages. They are downloadable. They are printable. And, uh, in fact, there's another tip I can give your listeners if you'd like to know. You bet. And that is uh, using the search term near colon will help them even narrow down their search results when they use the book database. So if I put in John space near colon to space Smith, that means search for all the occurrences of John Smith where they are within two words of each other. And that will help narrow down a lot of the results that you get when you use common names like Smith or John. You bet, and particularly if there was a middle name in between, it still will catch it, won't it? Exactly. Oh, wonderful. Well, I can certainly see why Heritage Quest Online was uh, named one of the top 101 best websites. It's actually in the 10 biggest websites um, list, and I can certainly see why. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us about the website. And I, I think everybody will be checking in with their public library to see if they can get online with Heritage Quest Online. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. In today's Library Spotlight segment, I have the great pleasure of talking with James Sweeney, who has worked at the Library of Congress for 20 years in reference services. And he's here today to give us a brief overview of this amazing library, its genealogy room, and talk to us about how you can visit both in person and online. Hi, James, and welcome to the show. Hi, Lisa. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks so much for joining us. You know, being out here on the West Coast, I don't get a chance to get out east very often, but I have had the good fortune of getting to spend several days over at the Library of Congress a couple of years ago, and I was just amazed at the immensity of it and the vast holdings. It was just more than I had expected. So I'm wondering, for those who haven't yet had the opportunity to visit in person, can you give us a kind of a brief overview of what they may find there and uh, what, how they can make the most out of their trip to Washington, D.C.? Certainly, and we're honored to be able to highlight the Library of Congress. Uh, the Library of Congress is located physically across from the U.S. Capitol building on First Street and Independence Southeast in downtown Washington, D.C. However, uh, I'd like to give you a, a description of the library, but also perhaps uh, we can talk about how uh, researchers uh, located in areas other than Washington, D.C. can utilize the services and collections of the library. Great. But the library is one of the, has one of the world's premier collections of U.S. and foreign genealogical and local history collections. It all began in 1815 with the Thomas Jefferson Library, which included the Doomsday Book by Sir William Donegal, the Baronage of England and the Peerage of Ireland. And that has developed into more than 60,000 genealogies from around the world and more than 100,000 U.S. local histories. The library also collects local histories from around the world, and those doing foreign research will find strong collections for Western Europe, especially the British Isles, Ireland, and Germany. 
I think it's important to distinguish the, what the library is not. The Library of Congress is not an archive or repository for unpublished or primary sources such as county, state, or church records. We often refer these researchers to a local repositories for vital records and to the National Archives for military and census records. However, the library is the largest library in the world and holds uh, roughly 20 million catalog books. Focusing our, our research in uh, the local history and genealogy reading room uh -huh. is one of over 20 reading rooms in the library. Uh, the main access point for the collections and services for our reading room, the local history and genealogy reading room, is through the reading room's webpage. We suggest that researchers prior to coming to the Library of Congress review the webpage where you're able to uh, see categories for tours and research orientations which are regularly provided by our staff. You're able to sign up uh, for these. Before you come to the library, you're able to review reading room policies and prepare for your research. Uh, one key element needed to search here at the library is a reader registration card. All readers uh, must obtain one. It's a simple process. One needs to bring photo identification such as a driver's license, and it takes about 10 minutes. But with the reader registration card, uh, one is able to request materials from the collections and also enter the reading rooms. And James, um, that brings up a question I have when you do come in person. Can you just tell us a little bit what they might expect? It is a bit different than going to a regular library. You do make requests for the materials, but there can be a little bit of a delay in in getting them pulled off the shelves, because you don't go and just pull them off your sh off the shelves yourself, do you? That's correct. The library is a closed stack library. Unlike many public libraries, what this means is you identify your materials for the library's online catalog or other uh, finding aids in the in the reading room, fill out a call slip, turn this in, and then the materials are brought back to you. Depending on what building they're located. Uh, the request time could be approximately an hour to an hour and a half. So it's very important prior to coming to the library uh, that you search your library's online catalog, do that which you can do at home, and then focus on that which you can only do at the library when you're in, in Washington. If you plan ahead, you're able to eliminate frustration or reduce it at least identifying the materials that you need and having these ready to submit. And that's a very good point that you make, that there are, the library actually comprises several different buildings. And I know in looking in the card catalog, each material shows which building it's held at. So if you become familiar with the map, you can have a sense of um, which items may be at a further distance, and you might want to request those first when you arrive because they're going to take a little longer to receive. Is that right? That's correct. Materials in the general collections can be requested in the local history and genealogy reading room. However, there are genealogical materials in practically all the reading rooms of the library. How would you know this? Simply by searching the online catalog and then speaking with the reference staff who are there available to help you. The online catalog will tell you in which reading room you're to request materials. If it's the general collections, as in most or of our genealogical and local history publications, you may do so in the local history and genealogy reading room. But you may be referred to the geography and map division, or manuscripts, or newspaper and current periodical reading room, or the rare book and special collections reading room. The library online catalog will point you 
as well as our reference staff as we become involved in your research when you arrive. That's great to know. And you did make a very good point at the very beginning of this um, interview, and that is that we are not going to find primary source records. We're not going to find vital records and and census records or, or you know, those specific things there at the library. But tell us, uh, what are some of your favorite, what do you think are some of the really wonderful resources that a genealogist should be looking for? Well, perhaps somewhat to highlight some of the collections, the library has an unmatched U.S. City Directory collection uh, containing paper and microfilm formats, which includes about 1,200 cities, towns, and counties from across the United States. Uh, this is very important uh, and very helpful in perhaps filling in the years between the census. In addition, the library has extensive local history and, again, uh, genealogical collections by two reasons. One is through uh, the Copyright Office, the library receives deposits, uh, is able to claim deposits from the U.S. Copyright Office, as well as by donations. Uh, our library's collections are extensive simply because of, of donors have thought of the library in submitting their family history compilations, uh, their published works, uh, to the Library of Congress. We solicit these in, in order to augment our collections. Uh, but the breadth and the depth of the library's collections uh, certainly is, is a great advantage to the researcher coming here to be able to, to, to search out uh, genealogical research, to find the elusive uh, name or quest that, that, that they may have been searching for. You bet. And, and when we do find a wonderful history book, I know when I went, I found some very rare, you know, kind of one-of-a-kind books about some locations in England that I was researching. What options do we have in terms of photocopying or um, somehow, you know, do we need to transcribe that information? How do we bring some of that information back home with us? Well, for most of the materials here at the library, the genealogical materials, the materials you will find in the general collections, uh, the reading room does have a photo publication service, does have photocopies, which are self-service. Also, the library has a photo duplication service for perhaps researchers who are not able to come to Washington or uh, are here but would like the library to make copies. Uh, that is available as well, and, and information about that is available on our website. These materials, genealogies and local histories, for the most part, do not circulate through interlibrary loan. However, searching the online catalog, if you find that the, the item has been microfilmed, that will circulate. And so your local public or university library can facilitate an interlibrary loan whereby the, the microfilm may be borrowed. Many of our genealogies prior to 1900 have been microfilmed. And so searching in the online catalog will give you clues as far as what materials might be accessible if one is not in Washington, D.C. So the catalog will tell us um, how we can go about requ requesting microfilm. That's a wonderful thing to know. Now, you were talking about the, the options on photocopying. If we found a book and, and we are not able to make it there in person, um, can we make a request to have a photocopy of perhaps a couple of pages of the index taken for us and sent to us? How would that work? Yes. Uh, again, the library has a photo duplication service, but what the staff will do will be, uh, could make complimentary copies of, of just a few pages. Certainly, this might be helpful for indexes to allow one to know if really the book is relevant. What we suggest 
perhaps is contacting us on our library's webpage, our local history and genealogy webpage, we do have a link to Ask a Librarian. And this is a way that especially remote researchers can contact the staff of the local history and genealogy reading room. We're not able to undertake research in family history or heraldry, but certainly we can help you with search strategies and can provide responses to specific requests regarding the library's collection. Um, I know we've just scratched the surface of the Library of Congress, but I think you've given us some great strategies on how to get ready to come and visit, make the most of it while we're there, and then, of course, visit you online um, if we can't make it out in person. James, thank you so much for taking time out and talking with us about it. I think you've gotten us all interested to um, take another visit to the Library of Congress online. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. We welcome our researchers to contact us, especially if, if there are questions, and we're here to guide you through your questions. Well, in today's Best of Family Tree Magazine segment, we are going back to September of 2004, and I've got Alice and Stacy here with me to talk about an article that appeared uh, in one of the special issues. It was called The Grandparent Traps by Lauren Gamber. And Allison, tell us, what was the special issue that came out back in 2004? Well, this was called Trace Your Family History, and um, for a couple of years we did these um, specials that were geared toward beginners in genealogy, so we included a lot of um, sort of the basics of how to research and also things not to do in your research, and that's the gist of this article. I love this article because we were, she and I were just looking through it, and it has all these different myths, and I know that you guys listening have heard many of these, and just the fact that all of them are something I know that I have heard at some point or another during my research, you realize how universal they are, don't you, Allison? Yeah, you do, Um, and to that end, it's something where every family story gets passed down and there's usually a grain of truth in everything but things get distorted um it's kind of like playing a game of telephone by the time you get finished (laughs) the story doesn't really sound the same as it began um and that's what a lot of these myths are about it's funny we have one of those in our family and when i finally tracked down a whole nother different branch of the family on the different side of the country they had almost an identical myth but just in a different county in Ireland, and they had swapped the the occupation of the great-grandfather involved, and they were adamant. And of course, I had, you know, written notes from great aunts and people who were sure that they had known this story, and it was funny how many parallels there were. So that goes back to your idea of that grain of truth. There, There almost always is, but somehow it gets morphed, and then people just hang on to it, don't they? They do, and that's why it's so important as a genealogist to really not take anything is gospel and um, focus on finding the, the facts and separating that from the embellishments or changes that have happened over time. You know, one of the most common myths that we see in family history is that old story, our family name was changed at Ellis Island. Oh, yes. Yeah, we get so many people that insist that this must be true because that's what, you know, my mom said or my grandfather or whoever it was. Um, And it's really something that in our popular culture people just accept as truth. I know that um, when 
one of our authors was on the Today Show, Al Roker brought it up in oh. the interview, <laughs> and she had to politely correct him. Um, but you know, the fact of the matter is that immigration officials at Ellis Island and other ports didn't actually fill out paperwork. That was all done at the port of departure where the immigrants left, and so there would be no opportunity for them to have actually written down or changed the immigrant's name. It was whatever the immigrant supplied when they left um, their homeland or the other you know, port country where the port was where they departed. That, that's where that all took place. So um, clearly, you know, it is a myth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder almost if, if saying, oh, we changed it at Ellis Island was really synonymous with saying we changed it when we immigrated and, and I find in my own family the the Sporowski families that was the basic yeah we had it changed because they changed to Sporin mm -hmm. but in reality it was done during the naturalization process mm -hmm. and it was and I could see the parallel how it was triggered by the world wars mm -hmm. they were German and they figured, ah, oh, good time to become a citizen, and they go ahead and anglicize the name at that point. But I, I have a feeling that um, my grandmother was always so proud that they came through Ellis Island that she just kind of put that all together as meaning they immigrated from the old country, they changed the name. <laughs> yeah, and to go back to that grain of truth, you know, once people got to the United States, they didn't want to be alienated from the rest of society. So, you know, it was often easier to just, you know, anglicize the spelling or make something sound a little bit more American. And then further to that point, you know, people in America often didn't know how to pronounce things yeah. or spell things. And so, you know, not specifically at Ellis Island, but maybe on census records or clerks, um, you know, in different record offices may have actually morphed the name. And so, you know, somehow it all kind of compressed into the day we arrived at Ellis Island. I'll never forget looking at the census record and finding a, the German cousin of, of the great-grandparents. And uh, the reason I couldn't find him originally was because his name was listed as Walter. Well, that was my great-grandmother, German, saying Walter. Oh, oh Walter lives here, you know. <laughs> and he spelled it V-U-L-T-E-R. And no wonder, you know, we couldn't mm -hmm. find him in the index. Now, you have a myth that also shows up in the article, and that is, of course, the great three brothers that yes. immigrated. Tell us who the great three brothers were, yes. and how did you guys get on the short end of that stick in your family? Well, um, we have some Hauks in our family tree, and there happens to be a Hauk family that were famous brewers in Cincinnati at the um, late 1800s. And so my grandmother had shared some family papers with me, and she had written some notes on there that, you know, my, my mother always said that, you know, the three brothers came to America, and, um, you know, the oldest two founded the brewery and they got all the money and inherited everything from the family and you know our, my grandfather got the short end of the stick <laughs> and I suppose that may be true however um, you know there my aunt had been doing some genealogical research and has been able to find no connection between our Hawks and the Brewing Hawks. So, um, you know, it seems like it may be one of those cases where the legend just kind of took over the, the actual truth of the story. Yeah, exactly. You know, those of you listening, you might really have some fun just um, getting a hold of this old article and um, seeing how many of these myths that you have heard in your own research, in your own families. There are several on here. And Allison, I know that this article, actually, because it's from the special issue back in 2004, it isn't in the store as far as like a back issue, but, but folks are going to be able to access some of these older articles. Tell us how we can do that. Yeah, we're working on a new service called Family Tree Magazine Plus. Basically, um, it's going to include a 1,000 
articles from our archives, probably even more than that. Um, and it will all be available on our website for a subscription fee, monthly or annually. And so you can look for that to be coming um, on FamilyTreeMagazine.com later this year. That's going to be fantastic because, particularly in, in, in articles like this, some of these things are universal. It doesn't matter if it was written four years ago or 40 minutes ago. Um, it's still applicable, and this one is an awful lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us at the Best of Family Tree. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me for the September 2009 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure to visit the Genealogy Insider blogger for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis at blog.familytreemagazine.com insider. Then start researching your immigrant ancestors online by following all of Rick Croom's great tips in his article, Express Shipping, which you'll find in the November 2009 issue of the magazine, available now. Next, check with your local public library to see if they can provide you with free access to Heritage Quest Online and its large collection of online genealogy resources. Then get out your September 2004 issue of the magazine to read Lauren Gamber's article on genealogy myths and see how many you have heard in your own family. And finally, head over to the Library of Congress's website at loc.gov to explore their vast online catalog and databases. I'll have all the links mentioned on today's show for you on the webpage for this episode, and you can find us on the web at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. And if you have any questions or comments, email me at ftmpodcast at gmail.com. And if you haven't done so already, I hope that you will subscribe to this podcast for free through iTunes so that you can get every episode automatically downloaded. And if you're enjoying the show, we would love to have you leave us a five-star positive review. You can leave the star review as well as write a comment so that other potential listeners who find the show in iTunes will be encouraged to give it a try. Thanks so much for your help. And thanks so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I hope that you will visit me at my website at genealogygems.tv, where you can listen to my free podcasts, the Genealogy Gems podcast, and Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. Both of those shows are also available on iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. (laughs) 